Well, good morning, Seven Mile Road. We are in our final week of a series that we've entitled Jesus Interrupted. We have been studying for the past few weeks from Jesus himself by diving into his life, how he responds to interruptions that come crashing his way. Before we do, I want to make an important announcement, and that is that this coming Sunday, August 2nd, we had planned to reconvene our in-person Sunday gatherings. It is with uh, a degree of disappointment that I'm here to announce to you today that your elders, we have determined that it is neither safe nor wise to do so at the time, especially with the current landscape of the pandemic and how it is affecting our city specifically. We are looking towards specific measures, statistics. Two straight weeks is one of them. Two straight weeks of declining positive cases in the city of Houston. And so will you, alongside of your elders and your staff and the leadership, will you be patient with us? And also pray that we would be full of the spirit and full of wisdom in order to make the appropriate decision at the appropriate time to reconvene our in-person Sunday gatherings. In spite of the fact that we say that with some sadness of heart, that we will not have in-person Sunday gathering uh, this week, We do hope that you are eagerly anticipating the start of house churches that are ramping back up in the month of August. That that is something that we all can together look forward to and jump into with excitement and longingly look forward to whichever the date is that we get to come back in Sunday gatherings again. And so instead of dangling a date out in front of you this time around, we just ask that you uh, continue to tune in We will keep you updated as we continue to pray and discern when that step should be taken in regards to Sunday gatherings. And now back to the regularly scheduled programming of Jesus Interrupted. Well, a little over a year ago, April of 2019, which feels like ages ago, we were provided with photographic evidence of a scientific and astronomical anomaly. The image that's coming up on your screen now is a picture of a black whole 53 million light years away. With the collaboration of 100 scientists and researchers across four different continents utilizing eight radio telescopes, they were able to capture this phenomenon. Now, if you're anything like me, seeing Anne Hathaway and Matthew McConaughey venture over the edge of a black hole in the movie Interstellar captivated you And it caused you to wonder, what are these things? What would it be like to actually get close to one? Because these black holes are literally collapsing in on themselves. The gravitational force is so severe, so strong, that not even light can escape it. Hence the name black hole. That it it collapses in on itself and it tugs everything around it in. And that's the only way we can actually know that they're out there. They are exposed, revealed to us, only when something else crosses its path. For instance, a star. That when a star's trajectory collides with a black hole, all of a sudden that black hole's gravitational force rips at the star's light and gas and matter, and all of a sudden there and only there are we able to see that, ah, a black hole truly does exist. What was once just theoretical is now there supported by photographic evidence. 
Now, though black holes are a scientific and astronomical anomaly, I'm convinced that we've all got one. That we've all got one. Your sense of entitlement is a black hole. Your sense of entitlement is a black hole because what it does inside of you is it distorts your reality by constantly convincing you that you deserve better. That you deserve better. And what we're going to see from the passage this morning is this, that interruptions like stars that cross the path of a black hole, interruptions expose the black hole of entitlement within each and every one of us. And what they are going to expose is that our distorted realities betray us with a kiss. Not only that, we'll see that our responses to these interruptions are instinctively violent. And finally, that our only hope to rid ourselves of these black holes of entitlement are to become stargazers. And so let's look into the text together. Look with me in your Bibles or on the screen to Matthew chapter 26, verse 47. It reads this way. While he, this is Jesus, was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, the one I will kiss is the man. Seize him. And he came up to Jesus at once and said, Greetings, Rabbi, and he kissed him. Fast forwarding down to verse 55, we see Jesus' response to this crowd. At that hour, Jesus said to the crowds, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day, I sat in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. Situating ourselves into this text, Jesus is out in the Garden of Gethsemane with a few of his closest friends and disciples. And here comes Judas, one of the twelve, one of his closest companions, and sealed with a sign of affection, with a kiss, Jesus is betrayed. Now, if you're anything like me, this passage always rubs you the wrong way. It always stirs something negative, Uh, an emotional response out of you. It riles you up. And it's because Jesus has done everything right. Jesus, more than anybody, has done everything by the book. He has been out, like he said, day by day, consistently out in the light. And not only that, he's been doing everything for the sake of other people, that for the sake of serving the crowd, serving the people, he has been teaching them the word of God with clarity and authority. He has been revealing to them that the kingdom of God is at hand. He has been healing the sick, feeding the hungry. And here comes Judas, one of his own companions and trustworthy confidants, giving him a symbol of affection by kissing him and allowing that to be the means by which the soldiers and the crowds identify him to be the one who's to be arrested. The term kiss of death comes from this passage. You may have heard that phrase before, the kiss of death. What that ultimately denotes is that a, an association, 
uh, a relationship or even an agreement lures you in with a promise, lures you in with some assurance only to lead to your destruction, to cause your ultimate ruin. That phrase, kiss of death, comes from this text, and that is what Jesus experiences in this moment, and that's why we get riled up, because Jesus did everything right. He deserves better than this. You see, if we're honest with ourselves, we feel for Jesus because we feel for ourselves. <laughs> that Jesus is deserving of social contracts to be upheld. Social contracts, these agreements we make that if we put in A and B, we should, we should receive C. We should put, if we push the right buttons and pull the right levers, what we should get is something on the other end that is akin to our reward. For instance, if we put in the hard work, the long nights, the diligence to do the job, if we network effectively, if we're always on time, what we should get on the other end of that is the promotion, the recognition, at least the job security. That should be what we receive if we've done everything by the book. Or if we take care of our, our, our physical bodies, if we eat greens and veggies enough, if we do enough exercise, what we should receive on the other end of that is is freedom from sickness and disease. We shouldn't get that, that diagnosis or the prognosis on the other end. One of the things that Jesus experiences is, is a social contract that unravels before his eyes in regards to our inner circles. Those we trust to be for us. Parents, siblings, roommates or best friends that if we invest with intentionality into them, they should be supporting us, wind in our sails to, to all the progress we want to experience. They shouldn't stifle us. What we put in, we should ultimately receive on the back end is the return on our investment. That's how we feel. And that's why we feel all riled up when we see Jesus not getting what we feel he deserves because social contracts are unraveling before his eyes. Now, when I think about being betrayed by a kiss, no less, by a teaser into a promise that just goes unmet, an assurance that just isn't what it all pans out to be, I think about Costco. Now, let me explain. I, I love going to Costco. I've always loved going to Costco because I think when I go to Costco, I'm going to win. I'm going to take advantage of the fact that they've got samples available on every other aisle. I may or may not have to eat lunch today if I take advantage fully enough of these samples out here. And yet, Costco wins. Costco goes so far as to betray me with a kiss. You see, there is that sweet older individual who's there waiting. And as I walk by, they lure me in with their kindness. They call me son or honey and say, you look like you've been running ragged and you've got a lot on your plate and you know what you need? You need this little quarter of a slice of a pepperoni bagel bite. How's that sound? And I take it gladly because I'm there to take advantage of Costco samples. And you see in this pristine environment, fresh out the oven, steam still coming from the sample, I eat it and I'm amazed by how delicious it tastes. And that sweet individual is there to tell me when you've got a long day and you're in a hurry. Pop a couple of these out of your freezer into the microwave and you're good to go. It'll taste just like this except exponentially greater. 
You can just store them away. And lo and behold, days and weeks and months after the fact, I've still got that giant box of 100 pepperoni bagel by sitting there just clogging space in my freezer. And all of a sudden, I have been duped. Duped to believe that, uh, that that small sliver of a bagel bite would result in 400-fold of that. That my return on investment would be grand and glorious and just right because I played it by the book. I've measured it. I've thought it all out. And yet and still, any third-party observer could look at me in that situation and say, don't do that. It won't be the same. It won't be exponentially better and greater. That is an empty promise. They're, they're winning. Costco is betraying you with a kiss, with a sliver of a sample. And in that feeling utterly betrayed, that sentiment, we come to, we come to the recognition that this is what... This is what entitlement does to us. It, it warps our expectations. It distorts our realities. It makes us convinced that we deserve to experience exponentially greater, that if we do the right things, if we calculate enough, then all of a sudden we will receive the right reward. And that's just not how the world works. We know that to be a fact, don't we? Seven Mile Road, we as a community have studied through the book of Ecclesiastes. What we learned in chapter 9 of Ecclesiastes is that the battle doesn't always go to the strong. That the race doesn't always go to the swift. That when we look at a broken and fractured world, the reward doesn't always go to the most knowledgeable. The job doesn't always go to the hardest working. The spouse doesn't come to the individual who's most patient. The child isn't given to the family that's most prepared. That is not how the world works. And yet, in our distorted realities, because of this black hole from within, we have warped expectations. We have been given advertisements of if you just do X and Y, you'll be given Z. You will get the right reward if you just play it by the book. We forget that we live in the world that we live in. This isn't the pristine environment of uh, of an oven perfectly situated to lure you in. This is the real world, fractured by sin and brokenness. You see, we're, we're akin to forget that because of the black hole of our entitlement from within. And I have to be honest, Seven Mile Road, our response when interruptions rudely awaken us and remind us that our realities are distorted, when expectations go unmet, our response is instinctively violent. Instinctively violent. Look with me back in the text in verse 51. It says, And behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand, and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, put your sword back into its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Now, I want us to situate ourselves again in this instance. Jesus has been praying over the night. He brought alongside his three closest friends, Peter being one of them. We learn in the Gospel of John that this is Peter who unsheaths his sword and responds to this interruption with belligerent aggression, swinging away. This same Peter who just moments ago couldn't stay awake for Jesus. Jesus implored to 
to Peter and the others, stay awake, pray with me. This is the hour that I need you most because moments from now, I'm about to be betrayed and arrested and ultimately taken to be crucified. I need you now. The same Peter that was asleep in the garden is now aggressive, thrusting his sword out at people. And I have to imagine that in this moment, Jesus is maybe not literally, but, but even just emotionally, face in his palms. Like more than any other disciple, Peter arguably is the one that Jesus has invested in the most, given more guidance, instruction, whispered extra, extra words of the kingdom is like this. It's upside down. It isn't like this world. It isn't taken by military force or political coups. It's actually low and slow and humble. It loves our enemies. That's what the kingdom of God is like. And here is Peter thrusting his sword around. And I have to imagine that Jesus is just, Peter, what are you doing? My mom is always quick to remind me that my, my namesake is, is spot on. And my mom says that to me with lots of pride. Like, aren't you so glad we named you Peter? Like, he's helping lead the church. Like, you're trying to do that. Like, look, like, look at the ways that that name was so prophetic. I take offense to that. Because I, I read of Peter in the Gospels primarily, and I see a man who, who is quick to speak and slow to listen, who rarely says the right thing, nor does the right thing, per the passage. He can't stay awake in the hour that Jesus needs him most. He's about to betray. Jesus run away altogether, abandon him in his hour of need, deny him three times over. This is the Peter that, that I'm named after. I'm getting on a rant here, but the fact of the matter is this. Peter in this text is me. Peter in this text represents all of us. <laughs> that when interruptions come our way, when it exposes the fact that our realities are being unraveled before us. All of our expectations are going unmet. We, we respond instinctively with violence. We are quick to anger and aggression. Now, if you have Disney+, Plus, you have the opportunity to watch a really profoundly insightful movie, and that's Inside Out. Inside Out is an animated film that describes how we've all got these emotions that are running the console of our lives. They pull the levers like joy and, and fear and, uh, and anger. And I, and I just want us to, to recognize together that that movie is so insightful because of this. Anger, when anger takes the console, the first time it does in the movie is when uh, the child is denied dessert before dinner. And anger runs to the controls and says, oh, no dessert, old man? Oh, you want me to eat the broccoli instead? You want me to eat dinner? Well, I'm not until you eat this. He takes the controls, flames fly up above his head, and all of a sudden, broccoli goes everywhere. <laughs> That's what happens when anger takes the controls. Anger takes the controls when we receive every interruption not as just expectations that have gone unmet, but beyond that when we receive it as a personal attack. When we receive every interruption as something that is directly attacking everything that we've been working so hard for. 
We've been doing it by the book. Why would this happen to us when something is said, when something is done, when an interruption crosses our paths, we respond as if it's a personal attack. And you know what we do when that happens? We attack back. We lash out. One of my favorite quotes from Anger and Inside Out is, uh, when, when the traffic builds up, when some other interruption comes their way, some mishap, anger responds with, can we say that cuss word now? Can we say that curse word that we know it's a good one? We should probably say it right now. See, it's so telling that whether it's verbal or even just in your thoughts or maybe action-oriented, when we feel personally attacked by interruptions, we attack back. <laughs> when the driver cuts you off, on the highway, whether it's muttered under your breath or yelled out the window, that curse word that you know the moment anger takes the console, or whether it's that moment when you receive critical feedback from a colleague or your boss or even a close friend, when someone disagrees with you and your political views, all of a sudden what builds up is you feel like it's a, you receive it, you're collapsing in on yourself like a black hole and you're receiving it as a personal attack and you attack back, you lash out. Or maybe those moments when you've had a long day and you finally get situated on the couch and there your spouse calls your name and asks you to do that chore, that moment that you deserve better than this, you're entitled to this, you feel as though it's a personal attack on your, on your rest, on the things that you've earned and you deserve, and you lash back. Or when your child gets out of bed for the fourth time that night when it's adult time, when it's you and your spouse time, and you lash out because this, this interruption is an attack on you. See, the truth of the matter is, Peter represents all of us in this passage. We are so prone, so quick to allow anger to take the console, to take control. And when we feel personally attacked by those interruptions, we attack back. We attack back. You see, we're convinced that we deserve better. That black hole of entitlement within, exposed by our interruptions, lashes out mentally, verbally, or even in action. And so what do we do? (laughs) What do we do with this? I feel like this sermon has been largely uh, an awareness type of sermon of like, hey, guess what? There's this really dark and mysterious and inevitable thing that exists in all of us and it's, it's collapsing in on itself. So what do we do? How do we respond? What's our hope? I'll be very honest with you, in prepping, in prepping this sermon, my hope was to provide you with a series of to-dos. I wanted to give you the ABC of how to rid yourself of the black hole of entitlement. I wanted to give you like a, a guideline where three words that all start with the same letter would just be presented to you with such pristine and perfect alliteration that you just need to pause and pray and pursue. And I wanted to package it just nicely and give it to you. And what I've recognized in letting this text sit with me, wrestling through the own, my own black hole of entitlement, how it distorts my reality, how it responds so often violently, allowing it to actually settle into my own heart, I've realized the only solution the only solution is to be a stargazer. And what I mean by that is this. If there is a single interruption, if there is one interruption in all of human history that actually has the power to withstand our collapsing in on itself, 
tugging away at all of its light and matter and making it all about us, it's the interruption of Jesus on a cross. And if we were just to take a moment, and I'm not talking about thinking about Jesus uh, as the conclusion of your mealtime prayer or thinking of Jesus on the cross as, as something you, you nod your head to when we do our confession of sin week to week. What I'm talking about is actually lingering to behold with awe and with wonder this Jesus the greatest interruption to our entitlement that ever came our way, that this Jesus, moments after this garden scene where he is betrayed, where he is chained up, he'll be thrown down to a cold and hard floor. He will be mocked, spit on. He will be slapped around, catching a few elbows and kicks. People, people claiming that he should be able to prophesy who hit him, who hit him this time. He will be thrown into the hands of soldiers, to be beaten to the brink of death. He'll be forced to carry an old and heavy and rugged cross to the trash heap outside the city walls. He will be given a crown of thorns that will be thrust down his brow, where all of a sudden his vision will be blurred by his own blood. This is a grotesque scene, and I promise there is a reason to it. He will be pierced to a tree, up onto a cross, that every single time he tries to take a breath because of the ways that he is nailed to that tree, he has to stretch on those very nails to just catch a breath at all. He is suffocating. And the reason why I want us to be a people who linger there, to gaze at this Jesus up on that cross, in all of the ways that he did not deserve this, he was the only one who was entitled to better, truly entitled to better. There he is up on the cross, dying the death, receiving the wrath of God that we deserved. And when you and I are actually willing to see Jesus, to behold him there, to linger in that space, to gaze at him longingly, we will be undone by it. If we actually behold him, truly behold him there, there is something that happens to us internally that nothing else does to us that nothing else can quite do to the black hole of entitlement within us. You see, the interruption of Jesus, the Son of God, the spotless Lamb crucified on a tree so that you and I would never have to be. That sight, that vision, it not only exposes the entitlement within us, it not only exposes the fact that we've got a distorted reality it actually reverse engineers that sense of entitlement altogether when we actually witness the one who was worthy of everything that was better and best but was willing to take on the worst so that you and I would never have to. It undoes us from within. And so instead of giving you a, nightly, a nicely packaged list of to-dos, my ask, Seven Mile Road, is this. Would you this week, would you today, would you day by day combat the black hole of entitlement from within by just gazing? Gazing at the wonder of Jesus on a cross, dying the death that you deserved, dying the death that I deserved to die. Professor Brian Green from 
Columbia University as he surveyed this photograph that we looked at earlier of the black hole. He described that our response as humanity should be to witness something 53 million light years ahead of us, outside, and to respond with, we live in a broken and fractured world, and the fact that that exists out there, that reality that unites us all, that we can gaze upon and, and find to be miraculous and wondrous, that is something, something for us to hope in as humankind. And I would respectfully disagree. Instead of looking 53 million light years out, what we need to do is look 2,000 years back at Jesus Christ on a cross and allow that to be the hope the hope that actually resolves the black hole of entitlement in our hearts and unifies a broken and fractured world that we live in today. And so Seven Mile Road, would you do that today? <laughs> would you gaze with awe and with wonder at the cross of our Savior, Jesus Christ? Amen. I'd like to close this by reading a hymn that was written 300 years ago by Isaac Watts. And so if you would, bow your heads and close your eyes and receive these words. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and poor contempt on all my pride. Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast, save in the death of Christ my God. All the vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice them to his blood. See from his head, his hands, his feet, sorrow and love flow mingled down. Did e'er such love and sorrow meet, or thorns compose such rich a crown? Were the whole realm of nature mine that were present, that were a present far too small? Love so amazing, so divine demands my soul, my life, my all.